You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, uh, we're in a series right now through the book of Genesis. Um, up and through June, we'll be in the story of Joseph called Jesus in the Technicolor Dream. And uh, the reason why, uh, Joseph's Technicolor Dream, rather. But the reason why I call it that is because at the end of the story, uh, uh, Joseph is not really writing the story so much as Jesus is, and Joseph gets raised up for a purpose beyond himself, a dream bigger than his own world, and he is able to, through uh, the pages that Jesus writes in Joseph's life, feed the nations in the time of famine. That uh, Joseph has a dream when he's very young, and uh, it's a pretty arrogant dream. Remember the dream? The father and the brothers and the sisters all bow down to him, and they all put him at the center of the dream. Uh, and although the dream is a little bit arrogant, it's, it's accurate that actually um, the nations do come and bow down. Uh, the nations do come, and, and they are fed uh, through Joseph's story, but ultimately by the end of that story that Joseph's no longer at the center of the dream, Jesus is. And so what would it look like for God to wake us up out of our dreams? What would it look like uh, for us to have a vision for ministry, to have a vision for marriage, to have a vision for evangelism that oftentimes starts out when we're 17 and 18, barreling out of the house with great aspiration and sometimes ignorance and arrogance to get broken so that Jesus can be at the center of it, so that nations uh, can be fed. Um, I was uh, quite uh, enamored and fascinated with cities when I was, uh, when I was a young kid. Couldn't, couldn't get enough of cities. When um, I was about uh, 17 myself, um, my dad, in leaving, uh, in, in kind of his exodus out of the United States back to Hong Kong, uh, when he went back to uh, go work in the watch business where my family kind of is set up over there in Hong Kong, um, he, he drove his Ford Explorer from uh, New York City all the way to California in two weeks with me in the back and, uh, and my brother. We had a futon and just kind of barreled down the back seat and fell asleep in the back and drove across all the different uh, states. Uh, there's not a lot going on once you get past the, the old, uh, once you get past the Mississippi River. There's a lot of vacant land out there. I can remember that. But we visited all the different cities. And uh, we went to Philadelphia. We went to New York City. We went to Chicago. Uh, we went to LA. We went to all these different places. And, and I visited all the Nike towns. That was the kind of spot that I wanted to go to. There was like seven or eight Nike towns. I actually ran into Scotty Pippen in Chicago when we were there, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, I was in the hotel across the street, uh, Michigan Avenue. And I see a Mercedes Benz that just says Pip on the front. And I'm like, heaven help me if this is not 1997 and this is in the last dance right now. And Scottie Pippen came out with like nine Nike boxes. It was pretty great. They shut down the whole entire thing so he could go shopping. And he crossed across the street. And my dad looked at me and said, do you want me to ding his car? And I was like, no, dad, I don't want you to ding my car. I mean, he was dead serious. Uh, He's thinking that's definitely how we're going to get to meet him. I was like, no, I don't want my first impression of Scottie Pippen or me on ESPN for that matter or you getting arrested on ESPN dinging Scottie Pippen's car. We visit all the cities, and I love the cities. Cities are romantic, you know, especially when you're 10. When you're 30 and it's COVID, not so much. You don't really want to live in the city anymore, you know, uh, because it's a little bit dirty and a little bit smelly, and it's a little bit, everything's expensive, you know what I mean? Uh, but, uh, but when you're a kid, cities, cities are really beautiful. Um, and so here's the reality. Uh, from the beginning of, of scriptures to the ends, um, God loves cities. He's not scared of cities. He doesn't think cities are, are, are dirty. He, he, he's not worried about, you know, the, the crime rates in cities. He's not wringing his hands about what happens when population density increases. Uh, God loves cities and does work in cities because people live in cities, and God loves people. And here's the thing about cities that actually do us good. Like, like the gospel in city is for salvation, but the gospel in city also is for sanctification. And, uh, and, and that is because in cities, what happens is, a couple things happen, but one of the things that happens in cities is that um, how many of you guys know that in cities, sin becomes really obvious? When we're all in Sunday school and everybody knows each other and nobody's anonymous, uh, there's this kind of thin line of um, political accountability. Like if I see you at the library, you might know my mom. And so there's a level of I don't want to do something that you're going to tell my mom that I did. But when you're in the city, what stays in Vegas? I mean, it happens in Vegas. It stays in Vegas, or at least we think so. And so there's a level of anonymity in cities. So sin becomes obvious, right? There's a scarcity of parking spots. And so if I don't get my parking spot, somebody else is going to get it. So it brings the worst out of us in that kind of competitive nature to go and take what I need to go and take because the cities make sin obvious. If there's anything you know, doctrinally that's easy to prove, especially in the context of when people get together and all live in the same space overlapping each other, it's the doctrine of sin. It's pretty easy to see when people are anonymous and there's scarcity of abundance that sin is right around the corner, right? But the other side of the coin is true, is that um, in cities, not only is sin obvious, but grace is all the more obvious. Like I went to New York City and um, 
it was on this mission trip where I was in, in New Jersey with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and uh, went off to New York City and, and went to this church. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, David Wilkerson. He wrote this book called The Cross Blade and the Gospel or something like that. And it's all about how he went into, what is that? Crossing the Switchblade. Thanks so much for, I don't want to get, well, YouTube's not on right now. I don't get my uh, copyrights wrong there. But it's all about how um, in, the, in the most broken and lost and scary places of gang violence within the middle of uh, New York City in the 70s that the gospel broke out. And this church that I visited while I was in this mission trip was planted out of a gang. Is God not in charge? Is God not sovereign? Is he not the one that's telling the story of cities? Is he not in love with people? And so, um, and so it was an eclectic mix. It was like the most interracial, inner socioeconomic status. It was, it was multicolored, multi-ethnic, technicolored dream that God had birthed right in the middle of that city. Does God not love cities? And so the thing about cities is that nobody can be in control of cities because there's no bubble in the cities. There's no majority in the cities. There's no political Kiwanis club. There's nobody that oversees like, like this uh, homogenous kind of system where humans can be in control. When cities are in action, Nebuchadnezzar is always in the throne. But here's the issue. Uh, so, so the church doesn't have to be in, in, in control and so that, so that God can actually be in the throne that he needs to be. This is the idea is that when God is small, this is the thing on the screen, right? When God is small or when, when our worlds are small, God doesn't have to be big. This is the idea. We're scared of cities and, and we're intimidated by numbers and we're intimidated by population density. But the reality is that, did you know that the, the greatest revivals in the world right now are all breaking out in cities? They're in Taiwan, you know, like they're in, they're in Iran, they're in China, they're in places where there's great persecution. There's, there's in places where you would think on the surface there's great chaos, that nobody's really in control and so on and so forth. But it's in those places where man is not in control that God can be most sovereign and do what only he can do without man or even sometimes despite him. And so... Um, and so the story of Egypt, which we'll find uh, in Genesis 39, by the way, if you're, if you're gathering with, with us there, uh, the story of Egypt is not a new story. From the beginning, God has been doing impossible things through small people, like from Babel uh, into Egypt, into the nations in Babylon and all these other places. God is doing impossible things in kind of the chaos of, you know, the human order inside of, inside of, of human systems. Um, and so, and so it's, not, it's not an accident. It's actually on purpose um, that he's leading us into cities, right? And, and into these, these places that are kind of modeled by Egypt because, and this is what I'll put up here on the screen, the path of the kingdom, the, the pathway towards um, the kingdom of heaven and towards the dream of Jesus runs through cities and not around them. This is, this is the idea. If you guys remember um, when uh, God had promised the promised land, right, in Canaan, the place that's, that's flowing with milk and honey, right? And so uh, Moses has to die before they enter the promised land, and Joshua is the one that kind of guides them in and leads them into the promised land, and they go and they send out spies, and they realize what? There's giants. There's these Nephilim in the land, like this really scary thing, right? And the, and the question should be, as you're reading the Bible there, it should be, God, why would you put the promised land right in the middle of enemies? Like, did you forget something? Like, why would you put the place that God's people are supposed to go in a place of great danger? And then you realize after battle one and battle two and battle three, because there's a lesson intact in there. This is the reality is that people that don't have enemies don't need God. And those enemies were enemies to them, but they're also friends because they held them accountable to worship. And if they had idols in their camp and if they had things they were depending on other than God, if they had gotten too big for their britches, then they became like Nebuchadnezzar's. And they created their own towers and their own idols and their own places of worship instead of Jesus. And so their enemies were their enemies, but they were kind of their friend in a backwards way. Because the person that doesn't have an enemy doesn't need a God. And so what is he doing, right? When he puts you right in the middle of that wave, when he puts you right in the middle of that Egypt, when he puts you right in that middle of that world that's too big for you, is that you have to trust a God that's bigger than your world. Cities are not uh, outside or askew of God's plan. They are right in the middle of it. And Egypt, therefore, is the intersection of the path of the dream of God in your life. He is leading you in Egypt and in Greenville for a reason. You're sent here. It's not by happenstance. And so just so that we would have kind of um, evidence, like you know, biblical evidence for this kind of thing, you think back to the original covenant. You can keep, uh, you know, you can look at the screen here as I, we put it up there and keep your finger there on Genesis 38. But back when the covenant first started in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham called, no sooner than the moment that Abraham was called, he was sent he was already sent. He was called and commissioned all in the one fell swoop, or rather his family at least is. If you look at it in Genesis 15, verse 13, this is the commissioning of the covenant. He says to Abraham, the Lord says to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country. You're not the majority party. You're not the dictating party. 
You're not the one that has the, the roadmap and the, and the schematics. Like, like, the heritage of God and the pathway towards the dream of Jesus does not put you on the throne. It puts him there. And so you are not the social engineer of how this is all going to work out. So I have a plan that's too big for you because I'm too good not to. I have a dream that involves you but does not have you at the center. And I'm going to be the sovereign one with the pen in my hand. I'm going to be the one that brings the dream and so that only you would trust and wait so that you would know that you don't win battles, I do. So I'm putting you in the middle of a land with enemies too big for you so you know how, God, big, God, how, how big God is. So he's saying to them, look, just so that you don't think that something's wrong, something's amiss or awry in your current circumstance, I'm telling you ahead of time, the moment you were called, you were also sent. And you were sent into a land with giants around you. You were sent into a city that was too big for you to comprehend into crime rates and problems and prostitution and disease and germs and, and immigrant issues and all sorts of things that are too big for you so that you would know that the hand of God is the one that fights your battles for you, not you. I'm kind for doing this thing. And so he's saying, I'm going to send you in here. It's not an accident. Nothing slipped through my fingers. And he says, I will punish the nations you serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come up out with, you will come up out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age in the fourth generation. There's Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. This is exactly where God's never early. He's not late. He's right on time. He's telling a story. You are not at the center of that story. And he sent you here on purpose because God loves cities. And he's bigger than any city that you ever have your two feet in. So it's the fourth generation right on time. Your descendants will come back here on purpose for the sin of the Amorites has not yet met its full measure. Here's the thing is that, you know, in a time like this, we're tempted to look through the window of our phone, to look through the window of our, our, our you know, our 385. Goodness gracious, have us, you know, might need some uh, sozo counseling as we're driving down 385. You know, all these people, as you know, right? So even in our city, 25%, like our projections for increase in growth over the next five years is 25%. In the next five years, we're supposed to have 25 more percent people around here. I don't know how you feel about that, but that gets God excited because um, in the place that God, God is, God plants salvation for the lost and he plants sanctification for the church that they wouldn't boast in their own control but learn to trust in God's, right? So you're looking through the window of your phone and life is, is, life is changing, the world is changing. You're looking through the window of your car in the rear of your mirror of your car and life is changing. It's hard to deny that. And you're looking at the news and you're realizing there's a whole lot of stuff overseas that's changing that's not the same. And if you're not tethered to the fact that God is writing this story, you might have the temptation to get a little bit insecure and, and fearful. And so I have just a very simple message for you today. And it's not to your head. It's really to your heart. And it's really, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard to miss. Like you could have read it in your quiet time this morning and you wouldn't even need me to preach it to you, Right? But all of these, all of that fear and, and, and all that insecurity and all that trepidation that comes when you look into the window of your phone and look into the window of your car and look into the window of your home and your neighbors and the things that, that change around you, when you see giants in the land, all of these things are, are, are making you fearful unless you understand this one message that comes out of Genesis 39, and that is you would be afraid except that God is with you. That's all that Genesis 38 comes to us to say. It's pretty simple. I wish it was more complicated than that, rather Genesis 39, is that God is with me. He's for me. The, um, the consequential uh, reality that, that changes the future to move onwards towards good and glory, the consequence, like the, the determining factor, is his presence. It's that he's with you and that he's with me. This is, this is the greatest promise that's, that's made to us. And so we look out the window of our phones and look out the windows of our cars and we're tempted, you know, to be intimidated. It's an intimidating thing to go out into a city, Greenville, South Carolina, let alone Chicago, let alone New York City, let alone L.A. It's intimidating because nobody's in charge. And you might be tempted to look at the scoreboard of things that are going on in that city and think that God's given up on that city, but he's not. He's just getting started because you're there and because he's with you. There's a tendency that you'll look out into the city and based on that kind of stuff, you'll grow in a level of contempt and um, infuriation with what's going on in your city. And what that is telling you is you don't know who you're with. You don't know who's with you. If you look into your, your politics right now and you look into the news and you look into you know, um, your neighborhood and you look into the stuff that goes on in your school and the way that they're managing your school's stuff or whatever, and you look into those families and, and, and neighborhoods, and if what you feel in your heart is a level of infuriation, you don't know who you're with. 
But there's good news today because it's drawing us towards the greatest conclusion that we can make of cities. When Moses gets, you know, ex, ex, you know when, he, when, he, when he moves and, and, um, and leads his people up out of Egypt, out of the Red Sea, and those big walls of water collapse down on Egypt, it's pretty obvious what God is saying, right? It's that, it's that Moses ain't the one that won this battle. It's me. That's what's established. That is what is being built, and that is what is actually being extended into our, into our day-to-day life. This is exactly what, it, it, it's, not, it's not just one time, this is exactly what it says, again, of Jesus when he is born. Remember this, right, in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 2, and again, I'll, I'll hustle into the, 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 the 39 this morning, but let me just give you one more passage. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to the dreams, uh, in dreams to Joseph, Jesus' dad Joseph, not the patriarch Joseph. So dreams appeared to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take your child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the children and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled, because this is just what God does, so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. There's no detour around Egypt. There's no escape out of Egypt. The reason why we're here is not to create an insulated bubble where everything is safe, and we say, not my problem. We are put in a place where everything that's going on in the city on our watch is our problem because we're sent there and he's with us. And so the temptation of insulation, of I'm going to kind of move into the the separateness as opposed to set-apartness, the separation of the church, right, and what goes on in the day-to-day life of the city is not the gospel, it was his plan that when you were called, like I came to Jesus in 2000, and, or no, 19, no, yeah, 2000, uh, Swanson Drive, South Bend, Indiana, reading 1 Corinthians 13. And what this passage is saying, if, if my covenant's the same as Abraham's, is the minute I was, I was called, I was also sent. There's no such thing as somebody that's called and not sent. And so the aspect here is that it's, it's, not, it's not just an accident. It's God's MO. It's his modus operandum that... Anybody that's called is also sent, and you are here and sent, right, for a purpose and for, for, for a great work that's being done. And here's the good news. It's not because of what you do. It's because of what he's done on your behalf, because God is with you. And so this is how the whole passage, and so it's so easy. It's just, it's just, it's, it's childlike, the way that it's written. So Genesis 39, we're going to kind of read through it this morning, and that, that this might speak to us and encourage us this morning together. But it just says this in Genesis 39, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, a big deal, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So this first verse, verse 1, basically, is, is painting a picture for you of what you would have seen to the naked eye if you had no faith. Like, if you didn't have any faith or understanding of the covenant that he was part of, that he was going to be blessed in a blessed nation, if you didn't understand that there was a plan um, unfolding, if we didn't read Genesis 50 and you only started at Genesis 39, it doesn't look good. And so, you know, the Bible is helping us almost take off the faith lens and put on the, 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 the kind of natural, um, conventional wisdom lens and take a look at Joseph's life and say, doesn't it look like God's not winning? Doesn't it look like God is losing? He got sold by his brothers. He had this guy, you know, point him out towards his brothers who mercilessly threw him in this pit and left him for dead, and then he gets picked up by these Ishmaelites. If you look at the scoreboard of life, it does not look very hopeful for, for Joseph or his people, right? But then it says this, okay, so that we would see it not just for the face value, but with faith. Verse 2 says that just in the same moment as Joseph was being carted off to Egypt, Look at verse 3, or verse 2, the, the, the statement of the morning that this would anchor us in our faith, no matter what circumstance. It says, I want you to say this with me, the Lord is what? With Joseph. It's going to say that four or five times so that those of us that are speed readers won't miss it. This is a basic, I call it a, 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 a with Joseph sandwich. The beginning of the passage, God is with Joseph. Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff happens to him. And guess what? By the end of the passage, God is still with Joseph. So there's a certain conclusion from A to Z here that they're trying to help you to make understand that, that if there's anything that you don't miss from this passage, and there's a lot of stuff that happens, God is with Joseph, and he's with you too. And so as you, as you read on, I think what this thing wants to do is redefine verse 3 for us. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes. 
I think that one of the things that the whole with Joseph sandwich can do for us is redefine our definition of success. It's, it's, it would be incredibly important to redefine, because of this passage, what we think of when we think of success. Because here's the reality, whatever you think of health and wealth and gospel and all these types of things, whatever your definition of success is, it has to fit within this Joseph sandwich right here. And your definition of success has to include the pit, the palace, and the prison. And if your definition of success cannot include, is, is, is eclipsed in some way from your life being given to the pit, given to the palace, or given to the prison, then you don't understand success. Because God is saying that if you were on Price is Right and Bob Barker had a list of uh, household items and said, hey, which is the most valuable? God is saying that the world has a whole list of what it considers success, but there's only one thing at the top of the shelf for heaven and heaven's people, and that's that God is with us. If God is with you, then you are a success. And there's nothing more or less that you can offer your, your family than the fact that God is with you, and therefore you are successful and blessed. There's nothing you can offer your neighborhood. There's nothing you can offer your friends. The most valuable asset and resource, according to heaven, is Matthew 28's promise. Until the end of the age, I'm with you, and I will not stop being with you. That is the greatest resource and inheritance you will ever know or ever have, and you didn't have to buy it or fight for it. It was given to you for free. Are you a success or not? God is with you. And so, I mean, we were at an awesome high school event, me and uh, Darrell, this last week at Southside uh, Christian. Was that fun? You killed it, man. Those kids didn't know what was going to hit them. Darrell came out there, and Timothy led a <clears throat> lion and lamb song. And uh, Darrell is so great. He's a communicator, so he performs spoken words. How about a hand for Darrell? He performs at Easter. And um, he performs it differently everywhere he is because he connects. I mean, right? That's what it is. You're connecting, and you're reading the room. And these were, kid, these were timid little high schoolers, Darrell. Like, they didn't know what was about to hit them. And you got in there, and he did this one from Easter. I like to call it Buddy Rose, though. But it's not called that. But I call it that. As you guys know from Easter, it's my favorite line in the whole thing, Buddy Rose, though. He performed one about the father um, called Abba, and it was just, it, these kids didn't know. They came to play Chubby Bunny, and they didn't know what was about to hit them, right? And it was so sweet, Darrell, and like, like it, was, it was so disarming because it's personal. Uh, the, the, the pieces that Darrell writes, but also the way he presents them, He's just serving. He's, I, he just goes out there. He has no reason to be out there in the middle of Simpsonville with me and Timothy at this little barn, and he's just serving. And God is so proud of, 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 of us as we serve in that way. But my blessing is that I do life with Darrell, and I know that that night that they didn't just send a poem through Darrell. They sent a story like the, that the Lord sent Darrell as a person. And one of my favorite things about that whole engagement is that I just can see all over Darrell's life as he's performing that God is with Darrell. That's the gift to me. It's not the song. Like the song could have been performed by somebody else. Matter of fact, Rose, I have to pay Rose $5, so there it is. $5 every time I say Rose's name in a sermon. Can perform, I'll have you up here in a minute to get all my $5 worth, Darrell's piece from A to Z, but if she went down to the high school, it wouldn't be the same, would it? Because it's not her story. And God sent a person and not just a poem. And I'm, those kids are blessed, but I'm blessed because I know Darrell and I know his story. I know God is with him. We were talking with, um, uh, I love everybody in this church. No favorites, right? But, I, you know, um, I got uh, the Peavies, okay? So the Peavies, hey, y'all know the Peavies? How about a hand for the Peavies? Not here. Love them. Not here. And, um, and so they've been through it lately. Have you ever talked to these guys? I mean, like, uh, it's just, I mean, if they had friends that were karma instead of Christian, they would have been in bad shape because it's been bad stuff going on, on, and on, and on. Like, you know, every time they had food poisoning, they had a trailer stolen, they had, like, it's been tough. And they got the new baby and, like, and, but just faithfulness, just faithfulness. And every time, you know, you're in small group and you pray for them, and, Lord, now you're really going to do something crazy. And then the next day it's even worse. And you're like, man, I should stop praying because obviously I'm making, making things worse, you know. But can I tell you that, the greatest gift that they offer me and my family and the way that I see the whole thing is that they remind me that God is with us. Because the way, and it just, you know somebody like this who helped me out and stretch into the application further than I'm able to tell you the story from a personal perspective. But you know that when they're talking and they get done talking and we're crying and praying about stuff, you know that they talked, but also God was in the room. 
And it's impossible. Like you can wax eloquent and preach and all that kind of thing and give a sermon. But how many of you guys know that oftentimes a testimony is worth 10 times of a sermon? Because you see that God is with you. And it's not fancy theological doctrine. It's his presence. It's the promise that he's with us in every situation, both in the palace and in the pit and in the prison. And I'd say out of all three of that multiple choice that the Peavies have been in a little bit of a prison so far. And I still have reason to call them blessed. And I don't know how to do that other than the fact that I can see that God is with them. And then I can see that God is moving in their life, even in that place, their success story. And if God is with you and you know it, count yourself a success. You are successful. And you are bringing a great salvation um, feast within the middle of this Egypt famine. And God has you here on a purpose, and the world is supposed to be too big. And it's supposed to be too complicated. And it's supposed to be too tempting. And it's supposed to be infuriated. Because if it wasn't, you could do it on your own. But now, because it's too big, you've got to trust in somebody that's bigger. So there's a scale, there's a comparative scale that's given here. How big is God, the one that rescues you from Egypt? That's how big he is. That's how good he is. So um, he has favor, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also favor with Pharaoh and, with, and with, uh, with Potiphar. So Joseph finds favor in the eyes of his immediate supervisors and uh, becomes their attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he... Put him in charge of his household, and, um, and with everything he owned, the Lord blessed the household of Egypt because of Joseph. I mean, this is the idea, like, I guess you're super contagious, right? If you're COVID, you have to, like, put on a mask so you don't spread your contagious COVID disease. You know, keep it out of here. You know, if you're feeling symptoms, stay home. That's the idea, right? And so just like somebody that has COVID is contagious uh, with COVID and can reproduce it in somebody else, so the blessing of God is so thick and abundant on somebody's life, all they'd have to do to get, is get around them and the person around them by way of just proximity gets blessed. There's a leaky blessing on people that are blessed by God. It's like he's so blessed that he blesses people that curse him. He's overflowing in steadfast and just this, uh, this crazy amount of grace and favor blessing that, that although Egypt is evil and although they're oppressing you know, slaves and although they're conquering kingdoms and although they're building upside-down idols, that the love of the God's love for Joseph supersedes uh, God's abomination of Egypt, of abhorring of Egypt, right? And so it just overflows, and there's this contagious blessing that leaks out of Joseph wherever he goes. And so the world is handing him authority, like it just wants him to, to make decisions. The world is wanting him to use that wisdom to be a blessing because even people outside the church and inside the church will recognize that. Everyone that God is with is blessed in an overabundant way. So the blessing of the Lord is there and blesses not only Joseph, but Potiphar too, just because he's Potiphar's next door neighbor. And so Potiphar is blessed and both uh, in the house and in the field, both outside and inside. So Potiphar left everything he had. Just like he couldn't find more stuff to give to the authority of Joseph because everything in the authority of Joseph ends up in the authority of God and then God ends up blessing it. So that's the idea here. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care and Joseph is in charge. He did not concern himself with everything, uh, with anything except the food that he ate. And so here's the thing, like, <clears throat> you know, I found that, um, that there's, there's this love-hate relationship that goes on in the world. Like, you know, you're a waiter in a restaurant and you end up working for a manager, or you're the shift supervisor at Starbucks, or you're like in school and you become the professor and the teacher. And there's this kind of like love-hate relationship that exists between the world and the church. And, and it's like, they, they hate what you worship, but they, they love, they can't deny that the good works you do glorifies your Father in heaven. This is what Jesus says is the equation. They cannot help to deny that the work that you are doing is blessed. And so um, there's a church, you know, out, out in Redding, California, and this is just a classic example of this. Like when ministries are built around like schematics and, and agendas and kind of like here's the box that we're going to get it all into, and it just leaves that by the wayside and just Serves the one in front, just loves people. What's the need? I'm going to meet the need. It's not about my gift, it's about the need, and I'm just going to serve where I am, right? And so this church out in Reading goes out, and they just start, like, caring for kids in after-school programs, and they do tutoring, and then that eventually just sort of ends up into, like, life-on-life -life stuff, and it ends up in discipleship, and they start to share the gospel. And so they just start serving, and then, of course, the school's like, man, our kids' grades are doing better. There's peace in the school. Like, you can have the keys to the school. You can just be here and do whatever. You know, you can have the, the authority here because we understand that there's wisdom and there's blessing where this is. Then after that, because there's so much going on within the, the hearts and the minds of these teenagers, then the parents start asking questions and they start showing up and they have a parent seminar about how to parent kids. These are like 25-year-old people teaching kind of the, 
some of the, the, these, these scriptures and these principles of God with these parents, and just because they love the one in front of them, like this authority begins to follow. And so, and so this, is the, this is the nature of it. It's like, yeah, the world hates the church, but it also strangely like loves the church. I remember my, um, one of my first jobs, I, I worked at um, a restaurant here in town. And, um, and so it, it's like waiting tables. If you guys have ever waited tables before, like there's a lot of cash on hand. And so um, there's a lot of unsavory characters that end up there. Uh, you make a lot of money. It's very fast moving. Uh, you work with people and it's a lot of fun. But, you know, some of those conversations um, would just make Rambo, go, you know, blush if he heard some of these conversations that go on, you know, in the kitchen. They're just not, not right. And... Um, I remember the first time I was there, I got in a bunch of trouble because I brought my little NIV Bible study uh, book in there and I set it on the, the thing next to everybody's phones and stuff like that. And because I had lunch and because I had dinner and I was a new guy on the totem pole, like I had to like stay later and I had to go earlier. So I just didn't go home and I just would read my Bible between the shifts and all that kind of thing. And I remember the manager was so mad when he saw that Bible. He said, who brought this Bible in here? And he found me and he was like, don't you ever do something like that ever again, bringing a Bible up in this restaurant. You know what I mean? This isn't a church or whatever. He was so frustrated. I remember one time we were sitting around um, uh, before the lunch shift, they would feed you because you didn't make as much money on the lunch. And so um, we were sitting around and it was like, uh, if you've been in a conversation like this, like they're all talking about something they know you would disagree with and they just like kind of do it just to like see if you'll get upset and be like real religious about it or whatever. And so they'll say something and be like, right, right, Oliver, you know, this kind of thing. So the conversation was, um, we think it's good to cheat on your spouse because if you cheat on your spouse, it's like a safety valve in your marriage, and it relieves tension, so it actually makes the marriage go good. And I'm, pretty, I'm usually quiet on stuff, and I don't speak up, but I was like, I'm going to have to call a timeout on this one. I'm like 21 years old. These guys are all like 30. I was like, I'm going to have to call a timeout. Like, what do you think about that one, Oliver? And I, don't, I have no Bible degree, right? And I'm just trying to figure it out. I just remembered what my pastor said in premarital one time, like a long time ago. And this is just literally what came out of my mouth. I was just like, well... I kind of remember that the Bible is saying something like, if you get married, then you're one. You know, it's like one person, one bank account, you know, one, one family, one home, one bed, all that kind of thing. And there's a kind of oneness. And so I was like, so if you cheat on your spouse, there's just no way you could be helping your spouse because it'd be like shooting yourself in the foot. Like, I don't know if, you know, the Lord just decided to speak to me that day or what, but I just sort of said, I, and then I literally said it like this, or it'd be almost like if you were to go home and just poop on your own doorstep. Like, that's literally... Out of the mouth of babes, right? This eloquent sermon comes out. I'm just like, I just don't think it's very smart, right? And here's the thing, because you felt it before. They hate that you said that, but they also love that you said it. They love you for saying it. Because deep in the heart of every Nebuchadnezzar and every unbeliever, they want something to be true. They want something to be good. And they're saying they don't want it to be true, and they're arguing with you that they don't want it to be true, but they want it to be true. And it feels safe when you say it, and when you stand by it, and you're willing to take hits for it, like, when you think about it, remember read the story of Daniel, is that Nebuchadnezzar turn up, turns up that furnace, right? And all the guards get blown back and burned up, and they see the fourth guy in the fire. And then when they see the fourth guy in the fire, it says that Nebuchadnezzar actually jumps for joy because he actually wants Daniel to survive. He hates him, but he actually loves him. And this is that tenuous relationship, right? Like, a lot of times, like, just as Christians, we just invite insult to injury. You know, um, and, and Peter says that we... We, uh, we disguise uh, evil with our faith and with our Christianity. And so we're like, oh, you know, like the Lord's gotten in control. So that means I can be lazy and late all the time and that kind of thing. You know, we make excuses for this kind of stuff. But actually, that's not, this shouldn't be how it is. The Lord should actually want to volunteer authority in the hands of the church because the church has wisdom and blessing. And it always has been doing that, right? It's not the first impression that the church, that the world doesn't like. It's not the work that the world doesn't like. It's just the worship the world doesn't like. It's vice versa, right? There's this love and hate relationship, and you have it. It's an in-law. Ooh, that in-law. You've been with them for so long, and they are so dysfunctional. And you help them, and you give to them, and they just cycle back around. And this is where that infuriation comes into play. Like, maybe God's not big enough. Maybe God loves everybody except for that guy, right? And so you're, you're tethered with that person. It's family. It's in-laws. And you just got to keep hanging on and loving Jesus and biting your tongue, right? And it's, it's, it's like it'd be easier just to hate them and hate them or love them and love them. But this love-hate thing where you have to love the person but hate their idol, it just puts you in harm's way every time. And it's not fun. But Jesus says that the plan of salvation goes through Egypt, not around it. And so you're bearing with them, and you're not, you're not relenting, and you're praying for them, and you're interceding for them. And here's the reality. As much as they think that they hate you or say that they hate you, they actually love that you stand for the gospel because the gospel is the desire of nations. And they want you to stand for this thing, right? And so there's this authority, and it's being handed over but it's never without a cost. And so this kind of conflict arises around Potiphar's wife, 
Okay, so this is Potiphar's wife that picks up in verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and says, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. And my master has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though he spoke to Joseph day, though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her in the same room. So this passage, I guess, very you know directly is dealing with sexual temptation. Um, like if you think about the way that Abraham came into Egypt the first time, there's two different times. Or instead of actually Egypt tempting Abraham, Abraham tempted Egypt, if you think about it, because he didn't claim that his wife was his wife. He said it was his sister, and so she ends up in the harem and is one night away, one night away from ruining the blessing. And every time God has to step in. But now, not only do you have a person that is not tempting Egypt, that in the face of great temptation from the highest power in the land and the best-looking woman in all of the world here, right, that you have a person that resists temptation, what has happened inside of Joseph, except something has changed inside of the dreamer. So it is about sexual temptation, and we'll come back to that, but ultimately, in the run of the passage, I think it's about the temptation also of authority and power. I've definitely been in meetings before, and you have as well, where, um, where the mission in the center of the church or, or a ministry or the gospel or whatever begins at this broken and contrite place where we worship and we pray and we intercede and we make it about people. And then slowly, the same way as a frog boils in water, one degree happens at a time, and somehow instead of serving Jesus, there's somehow a supplantation and we all collude to serve the ego instead of Christ. And I've been in it before, and it's like a big fancy eight-course meal, and you know, there's some rock star you know, uh, worship leader in there, and there is a whole bunch of books that are being written and sold and all these types of things. And in all of the conversation, it sounds a lot more like business than it does like family, and it sounds a lot more like ego than it does like Jesus, and it happens one degree at a time. Because the world knows if it can't beat the church, it'll just join it. And it'll indoctrinate, and that's why it gets sexual, right? There is this seductive thing that makes it so when you make $20,000 a year, you always think that if I made $20 more thousand a year, I would spend it on somebody else. But when you make that 20 extra thousand dollars a year, you always find ways to spend it back on yourself. There's something seductive about authority and power that even comes to you in the name of Jesus, right? That wants to sleep with you, that wants to get in bed. This is the idea. And change your generations and change your future that always figures out ways for you to use the authority that people give you for yourself instead of somebody else. So that's the idea, right? Like, you're that person in the family, and they start listening to you, and you're the, you're the mentor, you're the Yoda, or whatever, and it starts to feel pretty good after a while. You're at work, and they're calling on you, and, and all that kind of thing, and all of a sudden, it, it, it's like a slowly, like a degree, like you would boil a frog with it. Like, it starts to become about what you know and the wisdom you have rather than the God that's with you. And isn't it funny that then the stress starts to compound on you? Like, you've got to keep up a good, I've got to keep up my testimony. I've got to keep up a good witness because I don't want to mess this up or screw that up. And it's about how I preach about it or how I pray about it and so forth. And, and it's all, it starts to revolve around you rather than the one that's with you. And so it's saying, watch out, flee, says 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual temptation, but the overlapping map here would also be free from, free, flee from pride. Flee from thinking this is about you. Flee from, from thinking that you were saved somehow by your own grace and by your own favor, that Jesus didn't rescue up from the pit so that you would have judgment and, and, and instead of compassion for somebody else. Flee from all of these things that the world wants to indoctrinate you with. Because here's what the ultimate test, right? This is why the test was passed. Because in Matthew 4, Jesus was tempted with, with the greatest um, temptations in the world. And though he was tempted by all forms of temptation, he did not sin. And so Matthew 4 mirrors, like you're seeing something come out of Joseph's mouth, but really it's just an echo of what Jesus said, so, you know, would say um, long after. In Matthew 4, the devil plays the same trick. The world can't beat the church, so it tries to become the church and tries to merger into and infiltrate the culture and the values of the church. And, and it sounds like Jesus, but it smells like the world. And so Matthew 4, like this is what Jesus puts a hard line in the sand for his ministry and for his, um, his work in his Egypt in that day in Rome. And so, so, right, Satan brings him up on the hill and he says, look, Jesus, look at this. Takes him up to this very high mountain, like the highest one, and shows him all these kingdoms of the world. You see that? You see Egypt? You see Rome? You see 
Paris and L.A. and Milan, you see all these beautiful, they're intoxicating, the, the, the women that are there and the food that are there and the culture that is there. It just feels drawing and intoxicating. What would it be like to rule? You'd do so good, right? You'd be, you'd be so effective in your ministry if you had actual authority that I can give you. And so there's this seduction that goes on that he's saying, hey, come take this. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And here's the line. This is what we would do battle with that that we're, we're defeating temptation not because of our grit, but because of our worship and because of the one that's with us. We overcome temptation because of the one that's with us, not from determination. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is what Joseph says on his day of, of trial and temptation. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Some of you guys are in the middle of temptation moments. You guys are in the middle of sexual temptation. You're in the middle of um, the temptation for being a victim, I guess. You could be in the middle of temptation for, you know, self-serving and pride. I mean, we're, we're never not in temptation. This is why God always says to pray to the Father to lead us not into temptation and why we trust in this promise that God has only allowed temptations to hit us that we can stand up under as we flee from it and as we trust Jesus in his resisting of temptation. But what these two lines would would combine to say um, and, and deduce for us to say is that our weapon, right, against temptation is not, it's not willpower. It's worship. Is that in the middle of, of, of the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you're trying to stay off your phone and you're emailing all your guys and you've got all these like accountability systems. These are wonderful, wonderful resources and tools. But we can't mistake the resource for the source. The only source that ever makes us different from Abraham, right, or makes us anything like Joseph the source, right, is the deliverance of God. That's the only one, right? And so what is it that Joseph has and that, that, that echoes Jesus beforehand is that, is that he, knows, um, he knows is that the one that's going to give him deliverance is Jesus and not his own, his own sense of grit, right? And so potentially, as you guys even think about this from a, from a mental standpoint, is like I think one of the biggest times um, in my personal testimony of like dealing with sexual temptation and, and seeing um, God's victory in my life personally through all that journey, like was on this mission trip. And it was funny to me because it was like we were up at four, right? And we're like, you know, all the time like busy and we've got all the time ministry that's going on and, and we've got community there and we're in prayer and so forth. And because there's purpose, like it was almost like the temptation that I was feeling at home because we were on mission wasn't nearly as much because we were so focused on the yes rather than focused on the no. And sometimes we get caught up in the temptation thing of like, no, 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 I'm going to make this victory over temptation about no, rather than, I think both Joseph and Jesus would testify to us that overcoming temptation is about the yes. It is about a wholehearted consecration to his purpose and his calling of what you're here to do here in Greenville. So anyways, it moves on and Here's the life cycle, like they love you and they hate you and they will put the cloak on you, but as soon as they put that cloak on you, they're gonna take it off. And that cloak was never yours to wear, right? The brothers put the cloak on him because Joseph loved him, but the love of man, he, you know, he did not entrust his hearts to men because he knew it was in hearts. And so he didn't entrust his identity to any robe that any man could put on him or take it off. So the brothers put the robe on him and they take it off. And, and, and Potiphar's, uh, Potiphar puts the robe on him and Potiphar's wife takes it off. That's the idea is know how to wear the robe and know not how to lose your identity when it gets taken off, because it will. They'll put you up on that thing, on that pedestal, and they'll love you. They love Jesus. They brought him in on Palm Sunday. By the end of the week, they had him on that cross. So you can't allow that robe to give you an identity, right? Because it will, it will take you down. And so he always knew who he, who he was. He always knew whose he was. And his overcoming and his victory and his, his vision for Egypt getting turned upside down did not come um, from the hills, but from the maker of the hills. And it came from the testimony of what God has done and what he's doing again. And so he, he was put in the middle of this place with giants in the land so he knew how big his God was. And this robe gets, get, gets taken off of him. And so um, it's a pretty obvious message, right? Like it's kind of third grader here, but it's, it's pretty simple. Like God is telling us that God is with us. It closes up in verse, uh, what, 20? No, I'll go up earlier than that. Verse 16. So she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story, the Hebrew slave, you brought us, came to me to make sport of me. That's the, that's the like, they make sport of the, of the Israelites. It's, it's, it's projecting on Israel the sins that they're committing. And sometimes that means that when you get around people, it's messy, and they put their sin on you. And they project all sorts of stuff on you. 
But you understand, like, you're not the one that overcomes sin and neither are they. Jesus is the one that overcomes all of our sin. So we don't learn to put our hope or trust in who's pointing fingers and which fingers end up anywhere anyways. But anyways, he says they're make, she's making, she says they're making sport of us in verse 18. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in a prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So there he is. He was, he was with Joseph in the pit. He was with Joseph in the palace, and he was all the way down into the prison with Joseph. And wherever he was, he was blessed. He was favored. God was not done working yet. God is with Joseph. And so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those that were held in the prison. Do you know what success is? When you go into the dictionary of your heart, does it say the same thing as the dictionary of God's heart? Do you see success as God is with you or something else or something less? God is with you is our success. In verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. It's just a simple question you know, for you today. Like when you look out the window into our city and you look into the future of 25 more percent of people you know, in that, and when you think about you know, different global things, about politics and so forth, and when you think about the things that are going on in your own home, about the impact of cellular phones and devices on kids' anxiety and depression and so forth, like what is it that you feel? Because what you feel tells you everything about what you believe about God. If the feeling in your heart as you look out the car window on 385 to the left and to the right is a level of indifference or, or it's a level of intimidation, like this world is getting too big for me, then you don't know who you're with. The scripture has come to visit us today and tell us, like, this is not a plan B, this is not a detour, that the original plan from the day that Abraham was called, he was sent and God had Egypt in mind from the beginning of the day that he called him. And so the plan never detours around Egypt. It always goes through Egypt for great plunder. Because cities are where people are saved, but cities are where churches are sanctified. Sanctification is the process of me being in control, surrendering to him being in control. And when I live in a little bubble, bubble and I know everybody, and I control the beginning and the alpha and the omega, then God can't be in control. And frankly, I don't need a God to worship. Because my world's so small, God doesn't have to be very big in the first place. But if I got planted in a city, I'd need to cry out to him pretty quick. So, and you look out and you see an intimidation factor. What have you forgotten about the fact that God is with you? This is the one word, like, we know it, but we don't know it. My preacher used to say, like, you know it in your knower. Do you know it in your knower that he is with you? Because if you're intimidated, you've forgotten the fact that we name our dog Caesar and we name our kids Paul. Like Caesars, they come and go for a day, and there's nothing to be intimidated about any Nephilim or any Caesar or any whoever it is, magistrate, that's, that this world has to offer. There's no intimidation because he's with us, and he's just getting started. And we're still, even whatever 2,000 years after the fact, still worshiping Jesus and not Caesar. Number two, if you look out and there's any infatuation, if there's any, oh, I think the grass is a little bit greener. I just need to go out and, you know, take a year and just go and, you know, see the world, and that's going to be the place where I find fulfillment. I'm not saying go out and never visit anything or go and find something, but if you believe that this world has to offer you something, then you're up there on that hill, and he's telling you that if you worship, you know, that's the temptation point. If you can go and worship me, then you'll have all these things the world has to offer. The world has nothing to offer you more than Jesus with you. It is the fulfillment. It is everything that you need. And so if you're infatuated with something the Disney Channel has to offer or something the ESPN has to offer or something that you're you know, Instagram Explorer page has to offer. If you're infatuated with that, you don't know who you're with. And your victory over temptation is not your grit. It is your worship. It is coming to understand that he is big and we are not. And when God is bigger than our world and, and better than our idol, then we live a free life indeed. And so God is with us is our victory over infatuation. If you are infuriated and you just get so angry, right, of all the backwardsness and the, and the upside-downness of this world and how gender has changed, right, and how... Um, the way we school things are changed, and you're just so you know, angry, right? Not a, a righteous anger, but a fearful anger. You must have forgotten who you're with, that he found you, rescued you up out of the pit. You must have forgotten that, right? Like Joseph had a guide that got him to his destination, and his brothers put him in the pit, and then he got up out of the cart, and he went into Egypt, and all of that was part of his plan. And he found me, and he found you in that pit, and he raised us out. 
And what could he do next if we were to only trust him? And so it's a simple problem. I wish I could make it more complicated. I hire lawyers to get up here, right, and tell you something a little more complicated. But it's to walk with him and to know he is with you even until the end of the age. Bob Barker would get out a list of things and talk about all the assets and resources we have on this earth, all the GDP the globe has to offer, and tell you that nothing, none of that can ever compare to the witness, the witness promise. He is with you. There is a weight that lifts off to you. And you need to know that today, that he is with you. And if you're at all infatuated, infuriated, if you're, if you're angry or spun or insecure, your victory would not be to go get a different resource to go find the source, because he is with you, even until the end of the age. I invite you to stand in for the band to come forward. We always have time for prayer. Let's be a praying church, and let's not be a prayerless church. If we got anywhere in this life, it would start with prayer. If anyone got saved, if anyone got healed, if anyone got delivered, it would all start in prayer. And so I want to invite you to join with brothers and sisters this morning in prayer as one of our great privileges uh, in the church to ask and to seek and to knock. So, uh, yeah, right in the middle of that, I'll just um, uh, close us in prayer right here as we respond in worship. But we thank you for the witness promise, Lord. And, Lord, just in the pages of these scriptures, I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us, uh, everyone in this room that's gathered uh, in the four corners here, Lord, that you would um, open up our eyes, Lord, to your uh, witness with us. And I know in a room like this, there's so many different situations, it's hard to do pastoral application to every single one of them. But Lord, for every single one of them, your witness is a solution. Your promise is the solution. So Lord, will we not look over the fence at greener grass? Will we not look um, at the mirror as a solution, Lord? That we wouldn't um, look and be intimidated by the giants in the land, but Lord, that we look at a mighty God, the mighty God that we serve and the mighty God that's saving. Lord, we thank you for our city and we bless it. We don't curse it. Lord, we're involved and not separate and their problems are our problems. And so we, we are involved. We're not separate. We're involved in the PTA meetings. We're involved in the work stuff. We're involved in the marriage stuff. And it's messy and it stinks. But Lord Jesus, you're with us. In the palace and the pit, you're with us. And so thank you for your witness, Lord. And we boast in that and, uh, and treat nothing else um, as, 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 as uh, adequate weapons, Lord. But your, your witness, Lord, will be our weapon over temptation and everything we face. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.